You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback for us, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, in this episode of Inside Healthcare, we chat with a prominent NCQA board member about flipping fee-for-service models of care to value-based models, all for the purpose of easing digital transformation. Then we talk about the challenges and true rewards of pursuing credentialing accreditation. Later in our Fast Facts segment, I'll provide information on federal legislation regarding breastfeeding in the workplace. But first... NCQA's Health Innovation Summit is coming up in late October 2023, and between now and then I'll feature exclusive interviews with healthcare leaders scheduled to speak at our three-day conference. In our first interview for this episode, I talk with Summit session speaker and NCQA board member Dr. Craig Samet. In this interview, we talk about digital transformation. We chat about the pain points, the silver linings, and the ultimate rewards of healthcare digitalization. But we also focus on a topic I've mentioned on this show but haven't really gone into detail, whether fee-for-service models of healthcare can fully convert to value-based models of care, or if they necessarily should. And more than that, is it easier for a value-based stakeholder to join the digital bandwagon? And is that incentive enough? for a fee-based company to change its ways. About our guest, Dr. Craig Samet is the CEO and founder of ITO Advisors, an advisory and investment firm committed to value transformation in the healthcare industry. Dr. Samet sits on many boards in addition to NCQA's board of directors. He also serves as a strategic advisor to federal agencies, public, nonprofit, health plans, and numerous digital health and care delivery organizations. At the Health Innovation Summit, Dr. Samet will panel alongside NCQA's president, Peggy O'Kane, and other experts in a session called Payment Models and Digital Transformation. They'll all discuss the opportunities and challenges associated with digital transformation in a fee-for-service landscape. As you'll hear from him now, while Dr. Samet understands the difficulty in a healthcare company converting to a value-based, patient-oriented model of care, as far as fee-for-service healthcare models go, it's safe to say that ship has sailed. I tend to think of a, a football team without a quarterback and without a coach. And the performance of each player uh, on the team is not based on how the team does, but it only depends on how they do individually. If you can imagine a game like that, it's, it's pure chaos. And in all reality, your team likely does not win. Now, that may be an extreme descriptor of kind of piecemeal versus seamless. But frankly, that's how I feel is the major opportunity to shift to value from fee-for-service. Now, I'll also say that I'm a value guy. 
So in all my remarks, I'm going to be oriented and biased toward value because I think it's the right way to go. But I think the key highlight people mostly talk about is this notion of piecemeal versus seamless. The second thing that I would highlight that is a, is, is a distinction is I tend to think we mold our care delivery model around reimbursement rules. And I think it's unfortunate, but we use the expression that you get what you pay for. Um, and in many respects in fee-for-service, we frame out what we offer for care, um, the decisions we make, the services that we provide, um, the surgeries that we suggest based on reimbursement rules um, versus in a value-based model, I think we ultimately orient to evidence um, or to outcomes or to what's right for the patient as opposed to kind of what is derived from some model of payment. Uh, the third thing that I'd highlight, which I think I've touched on a bit, is, is kind of this notion of a process orientation in a fee-oriented model versus outcomes orientation in a value-based model. In a fee model, it's really more about the steps we take, um, the, the journey, and value is more about the destination. And I think that those are clearly distinct. But in general, I'd say fee-oriented is, is a gravitation toward sickness a sickness model of care delivery versus value, which I think is more wellness and prevention oriented. Um, you know, we've 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 all been discussing. Many of us have been discussing the importance of social determinants of health, and and I'd even highlight concurrent with that the critical role of solving our mental health crisis. I worry that in a fee for service world, there isn't the incentive to really move upstream, so to speak, and concentrate on the foundational drivers of poor health. We do a very good job of taking care of people when we're sick, but frankly, a fee-for-service model does not do a very good job of um, the, the true foundational steps that keep us well. And what kind of businesses value, uh, seem to benefit more nowadays from fee-for-service? Uh, and then we start asking the question, okay, well, what aspects of PCO, what aspects of paying attention to value um, can they start to work into whatever their modes of care happen to be? You know, what's interesting is I, I think we tend to presume that there are stakeholders or sectors within healthcare that are more designed or capable of converting to value. And frankly, I think that's just garbage. I don't think that's true. I, I I would guess that every organization, if they have the will and the way uh, to make the change, can do that. And so it's really less for me about scale, although it matters a bit, or sort of new versus old stakeholders, or even the role you play in the healthcare industry. It feels to me like we should be able to make a value pivot and a value argument for each and for me, in my experience, I think it's based on three features. And I think a lot of them are leadership oriented. Uh, you know, I, I gave a talk once where, you know, I said the secret to value transformation is something like bravery, thievery, sorcery, and it was a play on words, but it was all about a willingness and the capabilities of leadership to boldly make that change. And so for me, it's about vision, it's about culture. And it's about execution. Um, from a vision standpoint, it's 
you know, do I have a vision for what healthcare should be, not what healthcare is? And remarkably so, I think a lot of leaders settle into a routine. I hate to call them maintenance or status quo leaders, but that's what they are. And boldness is not what they had in mind. Um, culture, for me, the second feature is, is, is our organization change receptive? And I won't, I won't even use the word risk because a value transformation is not necessarily about risk. It doesn't have to be. And in fact, you could argue that the COVID pandemic proved that fee-for-service can be equally risky for providers. You know, there isn't safety in, in the status quo either. But for me, it's do you have a culture of, of change receptiveness, change agility, um, and uh, and uh, sort of a willingness to try new things. And then execution. I mean, there are some organizations that have great vision and they're bold and they have a culture of change, but they forget the fact that making a transition to a new paradigm is difficult. It has its um, issues and you need to be able to execute on that vision and um, so I would say more importantly than the type of organization is, are the features of leadership that allow an organization to change? Let me pick on that for a second. Sure. So the stakeholders, the organizations that are afraid of the idea of change for change sake, that's understandable. If it, It's not even about them being traditional. It's just saying we have a system, we have various systems and they work very well. We're continuing to expand. And if we change a base model for how we work in this institution, then we're going to have to change the way we do things all the way across the board. So tell me about digital transformation and how it relates to a, a, a change over to value-based care. There are going to be external factors that motivate change and internal capabilities that are needed to navigate the change. Um, and so you know, one of the more bold assertions that I made when I was the CEO at Blue Cross Minnesota was what if, I, I like to ask what if questions, what if we as a payer decided that we would no longer pay fee-for-service to any provider in our market, <laughs> that the external motivation, the extrinsic motivation would be that we would dictate the need for change. Um, that's what I mean by the external motivation. Um, that that's that motivates a lot of change, but in the absence of what you're referencing, um, the digital transformation, I think many organizations struggle with that leap. Um, for me, the the intrinsic features are uh, capabilities to change your clinical model, and I think that's where the digital transformation comes comes in. And we know what life is like today, especially in the provider space. And I think given the challenges of manual work, workforce shortages, you know, ongoing and increasingly complex administrative complexity and issues in just running the business, um, coupled with the ongoing digitalization of healthcare, I actually think that digital transformation is a necessary component that enables systems to really make the pivot from fee-for-service to value. I don't see how you go about doing it 
you know, if if we equate fee for service to running on a treadmill, you can only run the treadmill so fast before it burns out or before the user is unable to run that fast. So we don't use technology, automation, simplification, digitalization. Um, we need it. You know, we've long used the expression that healthcare needs to function at the top of its license. I actually think that one of the key new features in our industry that will enable us to do that is digital innovation and some of the technology resources that are available. So that's digitalization, not just in terms of data interoperability, but you're talking about remote care devices and uh, uh, improved uh, uh, platforms for being able to uh, collect and to uh, store, distribute, transfer data that's coming in from patients. I think it's a yes and. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 both. I mean, I think you you don't want to do digital light. I mean, yes, the interoperability of data, sort of the exchange of information. I suspect we'll probably talk about this. I think that's that solves several problems. But um, beyond that, I think that there are a lot of efficiencies to be gained in technology that we're just beginning to understand. Okay, so let's be sensitive to companies that are going through the process right now, their pain points that are associated with digital transformation. So can you shine a light on maybe two or three pain points, as we say, in the journey towards uh, digital transformation that that you've come across, uh, that you've addressed? And, and what are some things that companies are doing, can do to help uh, ameliorate those situations? Let's see. I I think there are several um, pain points that I think organizations face as they make this pivot. Um, The first, which I'll highlight as the most difficult and the most significant, is inertia. Um, We're we're programmed, we're trained. You know, I I just uh, gave a talk related to medical education and and residency training. Um, We're programmed. I mean, when we deliver care, when we build our facilities, when we have our care delivery model, we've programmed them to function in a certain way. Um, and a fee-for-service orientation, to some degree, is all that we know. So I think inertia, we're, you know, we're programmed to deliver care in a certain way, even if it's highly manual, and I think it's hard to change that. The second thing that I'd highlight as a pain point relates to workforce. Um, you know, we... We like to aspire to delivering care at the top of license. Uh, and I think we can use, as I've said, automation and digitalization to help folks practice at the top of license. But what I found is when you try to digitalize, when you help people function at the top of their license and have them do exactly what they should be doing, um, the remaining human work is somewhat less desirable. And so the jobs for humans becomes not just an overseer role, it becomes more complex. And I actually think that that is a pain point of digital transformation. And I think the last thing that I would pick is, and I live in this world full-time now, you know, I'm in the world of disruptors and, you know, I speak to several dozen uh, startup companies that are designing point solutions every week. And 
I think providers and systems are inundated with um, point solutions. I, I used to call it the vendor onslaught, um, that they have trouble distinguishing between who can help them make this change and distinguishing between hype and substance. Um, and then they worry that what they're establishing then has to periodically get unwound. So I'd say the pain points are inertia, workforce, and sort of too many choices to make to make this change. It's like a, a curse of blessings. You know, there's so many a, a digital transformation can be made up of so many elements that are in the workplace that are out there in the marketplace right now that uh, without some guidance going through it and some guidance to uh, to point out, here are some things that are uh, gaps in your workflow that could be uh, improved or, or gaps in your relationship with other outside uh, stakeholders that can be improved. Yeah. Here are some tools that you could use in order to do that. If, if you don't have experience with the transformation without guidance for legacy companies, they're not necessarily sure which way to, or how to get started with it, but they know they need to. Well, and, and I think that's, I think your comments about guidance are really critical here. And just a call out for NCQA, I think it's one of the reasons why organizations like NCQA is so critical here. It's, it's not, I can't remember how you put it. It's not sort of a curse of blessings because not every organization you can work with is a blessing. In fact, it could be uh, the exact opposite. Um, it's too many choices without people really offering guidance of who works well and who doesn't work well. And I, I think many organizations are just, I would even go so far as to say paralyzed by an abundance of choices um, without knowing which ones actually deliver and can support the type of transition you want to make. Let's circle back and talk about patient experience. Five years from now, what are a couple of ways in which you see improvements in the patient experience as a result of developments and furthering of digital transformation? It's a great question. And I'm, I'm going to kind of stick with, from my point of view, the definition of ultimate uh, value success. Um, we used to describe it simply as the triple aim. Um, and actually, I think I'm up to five. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to sort of publish a new a paper like Berwick et al. did about the triple aim, but I think it's more the quintuple aim at this point. And I see the power of digital transformation creating lift for all five. You know, from a patient experience standpoint, I see digitalization, access to better information, interoperability, allowing us to eliminate waste with replacement of substance. I want my doctor to spend their time doing the things that are going to improve my health, not doing the things that are administrivia uh, or waste. Quality. Uh, I mean, accuracy of information results in higher quality outcomes. I don't see how we would say anything differently. And under manual non-digital processes, I think we make mistakes. Computers are not perfect either, but I would much rather rely on automation as the answer to improve quality outcomes than manual. Utilization. I think that more information is better as long as it's helpful and useful information. Um, value comes not just from quality enhancements, but from cost reductions. And if a focus on gaps in care closure 
or other orientation that gives you digital access to information about optimal clinical choices as a way to move from a fee-oriented to a value-oriented world, I think digitalization will help. Workforce engagement and satisfaction. I think we put our clinicians through far more than they should or need to go through to practice optimal medicine. I went to med school to care for people, not to complete paperwork. And if there's a digital way so that I can concentrate my efforts on what I'd love to do, I think that leads to more people wanting to stay in or come back into the clinical workforce. And then, you know, I, I'm a passionate advocate for elimination of health disparities and health equity. And we have an absence of good information on the difference. Do I provide comparable care for all the populations that I serve? And to what degree will digitalization of, of quality information or other healthcare information allow me to eliminate health disparities, which we absolutely must do? Uh, you know, I'm pretty bullish on the power of digital transformation to really make this pivot to the quintuple aim. So hopefully this, uh, this has been helpful. Dr. Craig Samet, CEO and founder of ITO Advisors and NCQA board member. Again, Dr. Samet will be at our Health Innovation Summit in October 2023, where you'll have the opportunity to meet and talk with him before and after his session. Speaking of which, it's time again, once again, to focus on the place, the place that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. I'm talking about the NCQA Health Innovation Summit. For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida will host our annual convention. Bringing together leaders from across the healthcare ecosystem, the summit will focus on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, value-based care, and more. It will feature thought-provoking speakers, one-of-a-kind education opportunities, and an exhibit floor showcasing the latest in innovation. And as I said before, in the coming weeks leading up to the summit, each episode of this show, Inside Healthcare, will include an exclusive interview with a featured speaker that you'll see and you can meet at the summit. So keep coming back here for more, but also register now. For NCQA's 2023 Health Innovation Summit, go to ncqasummit.com for more. Imagine going to see your primary care doctor at their office, only to be told once you arrive that the doctor is no longer with the practice and you'll be seen by a different doctor today, someone you've never met. You want to trust the new doctor, of course, and for that matter, all the medical staff in that office. And you want to know your voice is being heard, your needs are being respected and met. It's up to the practice to ensure their medical staff is qualified, trained, and credentialed. This is just one situation implying the need for NCQA's credentialing accreditation. Here's a quote about it from our website. NCQA credentialing accreditation helps improve credentialing and protect consumers by ensuring a consistent, effective, and diligent credentialing process. Credentialing is more than a check-the-box regulatory duty. It's an essential safety component of the healthcare system. Healthcare organizations must establish the qualifications of their licensed medical professionals by assessing their background and legitimacy to provide care. 
NCQA Credentialing Accreditation focuses on consumer protection and customer service improvement. It provides a framework for organizations to implement industry best practices that help them efficiently credential and re-credential when necessary healthcare professionals. The standards help credentialing agencies identify gaps for improvement and align services with those desired by potential contracting organizations. I couldn't have said it better myself. So now for today's guest. Northwestern Medicine is a nonprofit healthcare system headquartered in Chicago. The system includes 11 hospitals and numerous physicians' offices, academic centers, and urgent care centers, and they've achieved and continue to pursue and update their NCQA credentialing accreditation. Bill Vargo, our guest, is program manager in the Northwestern Medicine Physician Network of Northwestern Medicine. He helped lead Northwestern Medicine through NCQA's credentialing accreditation process, and he really wanted to share with us the need for this program and the rewards of simply going through the evaluation and how Northwestern did it. Throughout the process, Bill was grateful for the feedback they continually got from NCQA. So for anyone interested in going through credentialing accreditation or any accreditation program or recognition program with NCQA, This conversation is especially for you. Here's my chat with Bill Vargo. Over the course of the last uh, 24 years, uh, we have managed to become delegated with all the pairs, big ones and little ones, Aetna, Cigna, so forth. Uh, And and over that time, uh, we've obtained, you know, very high scores, top decile scores. And then uh, over the course of the integration that I mentioned before, uh, our uh, consulting firm, uh, you know, encouraged us uh, to, to move forward with NCQA certification based on, uh, on our previous scores, based on our feedback from the payers. Uh, and it, it really became a matter of just making sure that we had all of the uh, documentation documentation in place. And that really wasn't a big issue for us. It had been in place for a while. Uh, what, what were the payers asking for? What, what was it that they, not that you were missing anything necessarily, but what was it about credentialing that would sort of uh, fill a gap for them? I think the main thing was, um, uh, you know, the uh, system control policies that were recently put in place. Um, you know, you look at, uh, you look at that, and, and it's occurring, but it wasn't in a more formal setting. Uh, we've got a very formal now, uh, very limited number of fields, uh, the fields that we believe are most important for uh, patient access, uh, you know, such as primary care versus specialist, uh, specialties, um, whether, um, uh, whether the providers... Um, uh, effective date with us is accurate because if those things change, then obviously that's reported out to the payers. And if it's reported out with improper dates, then uh, then patients could end up with out-of-network charges. So those, you know, it's the front-facing that's really important, and we want to make sure that all the data uh, associated with that uh, is accurate uh, for the best uh, best experience for the patient, and of course for the physician as well got to keep keep in mind those are the two most important uh, groups in this whole uh, process talking about ncqa if you can um 
a little bit from from your experience working with NCQA. Why do you think our organization is really the best in in place to be able to to provide this kind of accreditation for a credentialing for? I think I, I think the, the the way I looked at it was uh, was really to um, process improvement. Uh, we weren't looking for. I, I've never looked for a perfect score from any payer or accreditation organization. Perfect scores are nice, but perfect scores uh, don't get us feedback. And I think that was the most important part from NCQA, uh, not just to uh, to look at our, our processes, but to give us feedback in terms of what we can do better. Within the credentialing accreditation program, um, what really spoke to you uh, out of the things that were being requested? Uh, uh, there were probably things that you had thought of, but hadn't thought of in an official capacity, or were there uh, elements well, I think, to? I, I think the main thing was was to be organized. You look at our program; it's it's not a program that's in a binder anymore. The old days, you know, everything was in a binder, and and uh, you could point to a table of contents and things of that nature. Now we're very very virtual. Uh, you know, we're not in the same location. We've got people in. Oh gosh, half a dozen locations uh, across uh, across our enterprise. So we had to find a way that it was, uh, you know, if somebody needed to have a policy or a process, that they could they could find that at their fingertips without having to come into the office uh, and have a, a long drawn out meeting of you know how to find certain things. But that must help you to be able, or not just you, but to you know, the individual hospitals within the system to, uh, yeah. to fill employment yeah. gaps and fill staff, you know, teams gaps and to, uh, figure out who has a, a specific specialty or was right. in the field in a certain place. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting, um, you know, this goes back quite, a, uh, quite a ways. It, it has nothing to do with, uh, Northwestern necessarily, but, um, filling the network with the needed, uh, specialties. It's great if you created a network, but everybody, if everybody is internal medicine and nobody's a specialist, well, it's not going to work real well. But if, you know, uh, conversely, if everybody's a specialist and there's no PCPs out there, that's not good either. So what we've done over the course of time, uh, rather than grow, we're growing smartly. Uh, what we're doing is we're, we're looking at like uh, dermatologists, uh, for example, doesn't seem to ever be a, a, a point in time when you don't have enough uh, dermatologists, but um, you also have uh, otolaryngologists. You have, um, uh, you know, your uh, endocrinology, all those sort of high volume specialties. What we do here at Northwestern, because we're an academic medical institution, uh, we do a lot of recruiting at the end of uh, residencies and fellowships. You know, those residencies and fellowships are generally done at the end of, of uh, June, some, of course, at the end of July. So our recruitment is really pretty heavy from about February through July. Uh, and so it becomes a matter of um, making sure during the, the actual reach out process that um, that our onboarding people are, are recruiting the right kind of people with the right kind of qualifications um, and, and answering some of those questions up front. For example, if you are uh, foreign trained, Canada, England, you know, whatever the case may be, some of those don't qualify for board certification within the United States because they didn't do the training in the United States. I'm going to give you a hypothetical um, that hopefully addresses this. And, and we're talking about the benefit of credentialing accreditation, not just 
the simple benefit of, you know, getting your ducks in a row and, and having a, a, a digital, a virtual database that's very easy to, to be able to find what you need when you need it. But uh, in terms of how it improves things for the healthcare ecosystem, if sure. a patient, for example, you have a patient complains about a clinician, uh, somebody on the medical staff complains about a doctor who's, you know, within your auspices and you need to make a change, then what do, what do you think could or would happen next? Uh, and, and this is, again, this is talking about uh, how credentialing, uh, how this process, a review process helps to improve things and to maybe make things cleaner, make it more efficient for you. Somebody complains about a clinician who uh, who's part of the credentialing. How, how does this process help you to evaluate that situation? Well, we got a couple of things. You're, you're doing evaluation in the here and now. Uh, if you've got a complaint, I've got to, you have to address it. Now the complaints can come in a variety of different ways, uh, forms. It, it might not necessarily have anything to do with credentialing. One of them could be claims. Uh, we get some, some of that. But you're also talking about behavioral uh, complaints. Uh, and so we're constantly evaluating that. Uh, we haven't had any complaints from the payers in a while. Um, some of the complaints we get are um, or I shouldn't say some, most of the complaints we get are claims, uh, claims oriented, but, you know, setting that aside for a moment, we're also looking at a pattern. Uh, you know, if for example, Dr. Smith is getting, a, you know, he got one complaint in the last 10 years and it was because he had a bad day. Um, we're, we're going to evaluate that at the moment and make sure that, um, you know, the patient is satisfied uh, in our response. Um, but also we're going to include that in the um, recredentialing. You know, we're evaluating that. We're evaluating, um, you know, whether, as one of our doctors said, whether they play nicely in the sandbox, um, not just with uh, patients, but also uh, with staff. Um, all those things are being evaluated. Uh, and, and we've brought some of that uh, to the table very recently, actually. Uh, where the uh, uh, physician had to have um, some intervention and, uh, you know, what they call that, a good firm talking to. <laughs> so, so we, uh, you know, we're constantly evaluating because, again, back to your uh, e ecosystem analogy, uh, patients need to be satisfied uh, that they're being taken care of in a, in, in a way that, that maintains dignity, the patient shouldn't be talked down to, uh, but also that the physician is, uh, you know, there's um, good communication going on um, during the care for the patient. Like, for example, you, know, you could end up with a physician that is uh, a fantastic, um, uh, fantastic physician with the, with the uh, patients, but in the background is throwing tools around in the surgery room and uh, berating people. You've got, you know, you've got not just the patient experience, but you also have a medical staff office. Medical right. Staff. I was going to ask you about oh, that. Uh, having yeah. credentialing in place uh, helped, helps you to establish a policy, an office yeah. policy uh, that, yeah. so, uh, you know, in the long run, again, when it comes to working in a medical office for whoever happens to be there, whether it's a clinician or whatever the staff is, um, what are some of the benefits of the credentialing accreditation, the long-term benefits? Um, just saying, uh, if you were staff and you were working in one of those offices, 
uh, a year after the credentialing gets put in place properly uh, or a year after the audit is over and all the review process is over. What do you think uh, it's like for them compared to a year before? I think I think the main thing is that there's a level of seriousness to it. Uh, I'm not going to try and sugarcoat this, but w- what it amounts to is, uh, you know, if, for example, uh, we're operating, uh, you know, within our own little bubble uh, or not having any interaction with accreditation organizations such as yourself or the payers, and there's there's no um, control from the top down. Uh, there, there could be a tendency to, to look at our uh, our work uh, with less seriousness. Um, one of the things that one of the benefits of sort of what got us to the point we're at right now is to create a very solid relationship with all the hospitals within the system. We're all in this together. This is all about patients. Uh, we're not going to have a doctor move from one hospital to the next and be um you know, misbehave at each of those locations, but not being tracked accordingly. So, you know, you could be in hospital A, um, have a, you know, create a bad environment. Oh, well, I'll just move to hospital B. Uh, that's, that if information is being shared across the continuum. And, you know, we've been doing that on a health system level nationally for years with the National Practitioner Data Bank. But this gets really down into the into the weeds of the granular portion, which is um, how is this guy performing within our system? Uh, is he is he cooperative? Is is he adding value to the healthcare? Uh, and and that's actually evolving too. That's in my personal opinion. That's one of the best things that's come out of this. Is that we all understand now that we're on the same page. What solutions uh, have you uh, experienced or even what challenges have you run into when we're talking about making sure that files and that data uh, being sent back and forth are accurate? For example, that nobody is falsifying credentials or or that nobody is, you know, and, and making sure that the oversight, especially from the payers, that they're being satisfied, like we said before. So any comments that you have on that? Yeah, you know, one of the things that, and I did this with our uh, NCQA investigators as well, is, is to make sure that the uh, client on the other end, whether that be a payer or NCQA, understands that, they're, that the, the data is coming out of our system. It's not being um, falsified. In other words, what we have in the system is what we're representing. And that uh, sort of information cannot be um, cannot be modified. I mean, it, it is what it is. If AMA is is, a, is an AMA profile, and, and you know you can't create that out of thin air. And the first thing I did with our auditor, and I do this with everybody that we 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 work with, is here's the information. Here's how I derived it. So what you've got is. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of different documents in a queue, and those documents aren't necessarily in any kind of order because you're doing them as you, as you have the ability to. You know, for example, we have a very specific order in which our files are are created, and that's not created uh, arbitrarily. Uh, we want to be able to to know where everything is at, at exactly, so that that when you do your your uh, your file work, it's couple things is first it's efficient that's obviously right. that's nice uh, but also that you're looking at the right data and you're not missing anything 
So what I did with the auditor, again, I used an investigator from NCQA, is to show her that this information is coming out of the system, literally. It's, uh, it's saved within the system. But what um, Morrissey does, which is a database that we use, is it allows you to, to organize within that queue. So you can literally take all the documents, merge them together, and create one document at the very top of, uh, of the images screen. If you have a system set up that's already good enough to do that, it's going to be even easier uh, when you're approached for any kind of audit or any kind of right. review. Uh, because like you said, the, the payers themselves, they're not even they're not only going to be asking for the information, they're going to ask you for the, uh, the provenance of some of the information. Uh, and to be able to backtrack it. So right. so having a system like that um, helps you out, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and the other thing, uh, it, it's less, less of a uh, system issue because a lot of that, you know, a lot of that's happening. Um, literally, as we speak, probably documents are being downloaded in the system constantly. But one of the other things that we do is we want to make sure that available to the staff and available on demand is our uh, ongoing monitoring. How do we do that? What do we do? How do we organize it? How do we track it? Things of that nature. That's all within the system, all shared with uh, with credentialing staff. Um, very much um, limited. You don't want to have it available to everybody. Uh, so I'm able to pull those things in as well. Uh, and th those are, uh, not generally, but in all cases, those are um, downloadable uh, from um the Office of Inspector General, um, Illinois Department of Professional Regulation. And of course, we've got the NC, you know, MPDB, uh, proactive disclosures, and things of that nature. So, yes, uh, electronic, not in a binder, um, and, uh, and more importantly, available on demand. So, wrap this up for me. And uh, what advice in general do you have that would drive people towards? Pursuing the the uh, credentialing accreditation program. Well, one of the let's, let's back up here first. Let's start with the top, and that is, I believe um, firmly, and I believe this. This is pre NCQA. This goes back to when I started in 1999, which is that it is imperative that you have a different set of eyes. Somebody that's going to come in and say, "Hey, you're doing this, doing this right." Um, but, you know, you can use a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, you know, people used to say to me all the time, hey, it's great. You got 100 percent score. No, it's not. That doesn't really tell me anything. Um, I'd rather have I'd rather have five 95 percent scores than five 100 percent scores. If those five 95 percent scores come with recommendations for improvement. And that's the way I look at it. And that's the way I looked at NCQA because NCQA did a couple things. It did a very thorough analysis of our uh, policies, uh, very thorough, quite impressive. Um, but but then, you know, the, of course, the file review, you know, I, I, I don't get as excited about file reviews as other people do. I, file reviews, it's not like it's not like I can go back and change it. It is what it is. You know, you either did it or you didn't do it. Um, but more importantly, it, it puts a seal of approval on it, not just any seal of approval, but a seal that says, hey, these guys are taking this stuff seriously. Uh, we're evolving. If you look at our organization 24 years ago, look a whole hell of a lot different than they do now. 
because the, 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 the flame has gotten a little bit higher uh, so that um, you're, uh, you're constantly having to adjust to a market, uh, adjust to federal and, you know, federal state uh, insurance and accreditation organizations. So I think we've become really, really good at that. My chat with Northwestern Medicine Program Manager, Bill Vargo. For more about credentialing accreditation with NCQA, click the link in this episode's description, or just, as any time, go to ncqa.org to search through all our accreditation and recognition programs. Here are some fast facts, things you might not have known and you can share with colleagues and family. August is National Breastfeeding Month. So here's some data from the USBC, the United States Breastfeeding Committee. The USBC is an independent, nonprofit organization formed in 1998 with the USAID as a co-sponsor. As their website says, today, the committee is actually a coalition of over 100 organizations, all together building support for breastfeeding across the United States. In observance of this month, the USBC has some well-designed and informative materials for download. Here's some info from their messaging focusing on breastfeeding in the workplace. When mothers return to work after maternity leave, breastfeeding rates strongly decrease due to the unavailability of lactation facilities, the distance between home and the workplace, and decreased milk production during working hours. So, in 2022, the Fed passed the Providing Urgent Maternal Protections for Nursing Mothers Act, also known as the PUMP Act. The PUMP updates and closes loopholes in earlier legislation, providing federal protection for federal employees' right to break time and a private space to pump during the day. The law clarifies that pumping time counts as time worked in certain situations. Now, before 2022, if a federal employer did not provide time and appropriate space for an employee to pump, the employee could not seek monetary compensation in court. Thanks to the Pump Act, a federal employee can sue their employer for violating this law. NCQA has a HEDIS quality measure that assesses access to prenatal and postpartum care, the PPC measure, as we call it, covers two major points, timeliness of prenatal care and postpartum care. Here's their definition. Timeliness of prenatal care, the percentage of deliveries in which women had a prenatal care visit in the first trimester on or before the enrollment start date or within 42 days of enrollment in that organization, and Postpartum care, meaning the percentage of deliveries in which women had a postpartum visit on or between 7 and 84 days after delivery. As our website indicates, each year, about 4 million women in the U.S. give birth, with 1 million women having one or more complications during pregnancy, labor, and delivery, or the postpartum period. Studies indicate that as many as 60% of all pregnancy-related deaths could be prevented if women had better access to health care, received better quality of care, and made changes in their health and lifestyle habits. For more about this month's observance, or more about pre- and postpartum care measures from us, click the links in this episode's description. 
Okay, as we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we now ask for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include the words Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Makes it easier for me to find the email. If you're coming up empty on what to say, here's our question for this episode. How will your company address patient needs 10 years from now? It's a pretty big question. I'm sure there's a lot to say. So if you have a comment, a suggestion, also an idea for a guest on our show, maybe you want to be that guest, just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 113 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks again for joining us. So this episode is done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. You can find us on our website at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show or you stream it, if you do find us, then follow us. And spread the word. Help us build our audience. Let others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on our LinkedIn and Twitter accounts, and you'll get video promos for this very show, this episode, to share with friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>